0: Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson. On our panel today, we have Josh Adams. Oh, hi. And today we are joined by a special guest all the way from China.
1: Can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks. So hi, everybody. My name is Ming Chen. I'm a software engineer from China. And I worked at a company called Choice Form last year for about six months and helped maintain several Elixir and Phoenix apps there. And now I'm working at a company called Ecohe. We are a software consulting company and we help clients build full stack applications. So I'm trying to help the team to adopt the agile mindset and hopefully transform the backend uh, stack from Ruby and Rails to Elixir and Phoenix.
2: This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... Uh, that's really interesting. So, what is the uh,
0: the elixir community like in China, or what what city or province are you in, or like what's it like there?
1: Yeah, so I'm in uh, China, Shanghai, and uh, the elixir community in China is uh, kind of small, I'd say. And uh, in China, uh, in Shanghai, we host like several elixir meetups several months every every several months and um, there are very few people there like just five or six people and we talked about uh, elixir alarm and distributed systems there and the overall community in china is also small we have like wechat groups and we just have hundreds of people in that group.
0: So that is good that you have like a, in, an internet-based communities to, to kind of talk with people and share ideas. So like, I'm just curious, um, with, with the other developer communities, like it sounds like you're helping people moving from Rails uh, to Elixir. Is there a large Ruby on Rails community or is there a lot of Java or like, what, is, what are the big kind of technologies that are being used by developers?
1: Yeah. so. Um, For web development, I think the biggest community in China is uh, PHP and Java, and Ruby on Rails is also a small community in China, but of course larger than Elixir.
0: Yeah, right. Well, we're glad to have you on our show today, and you had recently uh, written an article that got some attention, and this is a, a topic that is near and dear to my heart, too, which is about not repeating your domain knowledge and so we'll we'll put a, a link to your blog in the show notes uh, but can you just kind of give us an introduction to what it is you're talking about here
1: yeah so it was a blog post i wrote where i worked at choice For. and so we were writing a phoenix app there and uh, so it's a phoenix 1.4 app so it was written after the concept of context introduced in the Phoenix community, and I just saw some code, uh, code smells in the pull request. It's like um, we were writing some if statement, and I saw some expressions conditions in the if statement, and I proposed that we should. Extract functions from it, so that we can give it a name, and it reads more clear to the future reader of this code. Yes, and so you you also talk
0: about the concept of dry, um, uh, which it typically means do not repeat yourself. And I first learned that in the uh, Rails community that kind of became a mantra of don't repeat yourself, and I've seen people take it too far in a direction of, oh, I see code that looks like code somewhere else in the application. Like the code follows a similar pattern. It's like, oh, so we have to refactor that so we can reuse it all. And and then you start, it ends up getting turning into a mess. Uh, But that's not what you're talking about specifically here. You're kind of talking about uh, the idea of don't repeat your domain knowledge. Uh, which I think is a good clarification. So what do you define as domain knowledge?
1: Yeah, I think um, I can feel what you feel as well because it's a concept that easily can be, can be, sorry, I can't see it.
3: Kind of overdone. Yeah,
1: Yeah. overdone or over applied to the application. And I think domain language, um, can be understand by some like DDD domain driven design concepts. So you have your domain there and you have every piece of knowledge around it. You have a ubiquitous language and you have uh, boundaries around every, every context you are building. And so in the Phoenix world, every context is like a boundary, and every module you wrote is uh, a piece of knowledge in your app.
0: Yeah, Josh, I'm curious. Like, how do you uh, kind of when do you feel is the right time to say no? This is this is domain knowledge. This is something that should be belong somewhere else.
3: I like the example he used in the blog post, which was um, I'm trying to remember uh, what the. The example is exactly, it, it was, do we allow comments from this phone number? Um, and the, the interesting thing was, to me, like it doesn't require, like the, the argument made in the blog post is essentially, it doesn't matter if you repeat yourself in the code, like this is a discussion we had to have about what this, you know, what this actually means in terms of our domain. This, it's not complex, right? It's a single Boolean and of a couple of, of Booleans but um, it required discussion and by extracting out what that condition means in terms of your domain, it avoids, it it helps you both avoid having to have the discussion in the future because you've said this condition means do we allow comments from this phone number? Um, But it also helps you notice in my, in my cases when I've run into similar things, like extracting what I want to say this piece of code means into a function. I can look at the function and go, well, no, that doesn't actually, my internal model of what this sort of conjunction was doesn't actually match what I'm saying about it. Um, and so for me, it also helps you get a little extra uh, spot to grab onto to, to clarify your own thinking. Um, so I thought that was interesting because in this case, it was not repeated code. It was just code that clarifies the meaning of the conditions.
1: Yes, so actually the dry concept was come from The pragmatic programmer by Dave Thomas and Andy Hunt and the original saying was that every piece of knowledge should have one and only one representation so it doesn't say anything about uh, repeated code or something it's mainly focused about every piece of knowledge should have its own place so as you said that we if we give a piece of knowledge a function to wrap it, and everyone can call it to get this piece of knowledge and use it, then we can like give every piece of knowledge a place where it belongs to a function, to a module, etc.
0: Yeah, I do think that's a good definition, like that it really is around a, a fact. Like that there is a fact about our domain, about our business that, that is important to us. And I want to be able to wrap that up in some logic. Cause like, uh gosh, I've seen this code. And I this is code that I'm currently working on, right? It's it's a Rails application that I'm uh porting and kind of moving over slowly to Elixir. And and at some point we're gonna tip the scale where we have uh, more of this application elixir it's getting close but you know you have that idea of where there's a lot of these kind of boolean logic and if this is true or that is true and this is all like in a controller and i i look at this code and and it's like i just really want to pull it out and put it into like a context and make it orderly because the problem is the, the net effect is i do not have the confidence to make changes to the code base because there, it's assuming that you have this complete understanding of everything that could happen, all the different conditions. You have to have a, a full set of domain knowledge before you can start really modifying the code. At least that that's how it feels to me. And it's like that, that is just feels wrong. And so what I love about the idea of just saying, okay, here's a, here's a fact of when it is allowed you have this discussion. When is it allowed that we can have uh a, someone make a, com- a, a comment on a post and and then i can wrap that up into something clean and nice like josh described into a single function where i can say are they allowed and and then it's so then i can i feel like i can compose that logic wherever i need to do it and i don't have to understand all the nitty-gritty details so i don't it know that
3: go ahead theme to to add future requirements in. Right, because right now we allow comment from the phone because these two reasons, but when we have the third one, you know, do do we just keep adding and to an if statement that's randomly somewhere in the code? Or do we pull it out to a function that says this is what that means?
0: Yes, exactly. That's it. it. And then, then, then when you have that problem of like that, you're reusing that kind of pattern of if this, but not that kind of a Boolean logic spread out in different places. And then you're talking about, yeah, we need to add this new feature. You have to go find all of those places and think about how it applies to that situation every time. It's terrible.
1: <laughs> and, and another great side effect of that is that we get great testability because if we extract an um, if condition to a simple function and make it public or something, And then we can easily test it with just simple function calls. And then maybe it will grow and grow, but we can have a great test suite to cover it. And then maybe in the controller, we can just mock it out. So in the controller, a common use case is that we have libraries like bodyguard to define if a user have the permission or authorized to do this to call this controller action. And then uh, I would do to do what I would do is to mock it out and just return true and false to test these two cases. And in the bodyguard behavior module, I would just test if this is um, when it, this function would return true and when this function would return false.
0: So you mentioned a, a library there called Bodyguard. I have not used that one or seen that one before. Um, I, think, I think this is it. I'm just dropping it into the show notes. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting idea. So it's uh, Bodyguard protects the context boundaries of your application. Interesting. Have you had any experience with that, Josh?
3: I have used it once briefly, and uh, I wish I'd continued using it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's similar to, in, in a lot of ways, similar to like CanCan and or uh, pundit in Ruby. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like I I very much like having that very explicit authorization layer, um, which is which is really what it is is an authorization library. Um, mm-hmm. I like having those. Uh, I don't have detailed enough ones in the projects I'm working on right now in Elixir, but, uh, but I have used it once.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I've, I've kind of, uh, I guess my preference has been to um, like, when I think of like the layers of my application where I have that outermost boundary where web requests are coming in, then I'll have at, at that, at that layer I'm trying to, I want to vet the uh, whatever the the user So I'm off auth- authenticating who the user is and I'm authorizing what they're trying to do. And then once that's happened, then I'll pass it off into a context. And then within the context, I assume if you're here, you're allowed to do whatever you want to do, whatever you're asking to do. So I'm not rechecking any kind of boundary conditions like permissions or anything. So I know that's kind of the approach I've tried.
3: Yeah. And it, it can kind of be used in both situations. So like the most basic situation is you just define policies that say, this person can do this sort of thing with this, with this resource and you can define the conditions. And then that gives you a check where you say like, can this user manage this post? And you can do that in the outermost layer. Um, mm-hmm. But it also provides scoping for Ecto things so that you can just give a user a list of posts that they're allowed to read. Um, I see. So. Yeah,
0: that is very can, can like, yeah, that's cool.
1: Yeah. And I, I think we can just use the same idea for our, context modules as well. So if we define a clear boundary between our context and our controllers, then we can have a clear API of our context and our controller just call this API. And in the test, we just work out the context layer for the controller and it's clear for the controller when the controller replies like, okay something and the controller would would return something about it and if the context return error something and then the controller will do another thing. And then in another side, the module, the context module would would also be tested like when this function would return okay something and when it would return error or something.
3: Yeah, I, f- I found having that layer useful because you separate the things that change, the reasons that, that things change. So if you separate out like your authorizations into policies, then those change when your, your policy about what people can do with what changes, and you're not changing like the internals of a function that does stuff in your database based on the fact that you had an authorization change. I think that's the benefit that I've found from similar things. But like I say, I haven't done enough using things like bodyguard and Elixir yet. I roll my own way too often.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I kind of, I tend to that direction too. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. You mean um, you mentioned uh, like in your blog post, some inspirations for this topic and you mentioned like uh, Sandy Metz and uh, and she is a a well-known, uh, specifically in the Ruby community, uh, very much about refactoring and uh, correct object-oriented design. Uh, and she's several books. I'm just curious, like what other kind of uh, sources of influence, or uh, you know, where do you where do you look to find inspiration and guidance on like what is a good pattern?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, I think thoughtbot. Board- is a great um, company where I was uh, just started learning Ruby, and I learned a lot about Ruby on Rails and Beam and how to design your code from their blog posts and podcasts. So, uh, I don't know if it's a coincidence or something, but they also recorded a similar topic on this um, on this topic um just a few episodes ago. So on their podcast, the back the back Shed, mm. they recorded um uh, that let's re- duplicate stuff. So what they were saying was that maybe you don't need to repeat um your domain language, uh but also you don't need to do it like too far. So a great example is like in the Ruby community, we have RSpec and we use Let and uh, some macros to extract knowledges out in the in the test cases. But maybe sometimes these are just two different concepts and it should not be merged into a Let block. So in the Elixir world a similar concept is that we can set up um, context in the setup block of a test. So in the setup, we say, we define this variable to this, and in the the test, we can get this variable from the setup block. It's the same for that in Ruby.
3: Yeah, the nice thing about uh Avoiding the macro and just using using the setup blocks uh, on the Elixir side is. There's never a question about the order of the order that things run, and there's never the chance that, like in in uh, RSpec, you could move the reference to something that was called was a, was a let down a line, and that could change the behavior of your test because it doesn't actually invoke the let block until you call it, and then maybe you had a side effect you were depending on, which is bad. But it's nice to have the very ordered. I'm doing some Ruby right now, and I'm remembering the the downsides of of some of my patterns in RSpec.
2: This episode is brought to you by Triplebyte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens, and take home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, Triplebyte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies, from big names like Dropbox and Adobe, to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. Triplebyte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com elixir. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus.
1: And also, I think it's great to write it down in every test, it, test cases. So, like, at first, in every test case, you have a user, you have um, to set it up manually, but after that, you can extract them into um, helper functions. So you have like create user functions, but um, maybe it's just a wrapper for the X helpers, but in this function, you can decide what is customizable in this test file, or maybe in this um, test module. But then maybe after that, if this helper function is not enough, then we consider to move it up and uh, then set it up in the setup block or macro. And it's always easier to merge things together than split it up. So for example, it's like you have, if you have a setup block at first and you write down um, several Variables in there, you have users, you have blogs, and then it's difficult to separate them into different ones. So maybe you have admins, you have normal users, and if you have it all in the setup and you modify it, modify the user variable in your test cases, it's pretty hard to like split this already combined concept. Into several different ones.
3: I'm guilty of that. <laughs>
0: I, I, think, I do think there is a, uh, I don't know if it's an art form, but it's, it certainly is um, an experience that you develop when you're trying to do, you know, good test practices. And, you know, how can I make a test performant uh, by, you know, I, if I can build something in memory, then I don't have to actually put in the database overall my if i do that a lot then my tests go faster but then sometimes i'm not testing more complex things and so yeah you're trying to uh always balance that and feel where the edges are yeah Yeah,
3: the right way to do all that stuff
0: well josh that's why we have you here
3: (laughs) and (laughs) i think
1: and i think that's also a great reason that why we we love elixir and maybe I personally love Elixir over Ruby because of its explicitness and uh, how it pushes us into writing more explicit code. I agree. I love
0: it. I I like gosh, I'm getting all stumbled up because like uh when I was in Ruby, you know, you you know, I came from like C# Sharp previous most previously to that and that was, you know, very strict typing, very formalized kind of a thing. And then you get into uh, Ruby, and it's like, oh, this is so much better. And, and, then, and then I started to, eventually, you start to get burned by so much uh, kind of magic that I, I, put, I add some package to my uh, application, some gem, and now like, my objects can behave differently. And that's like a little too much magic. And and so it makes it hard to test. It's like oh now things are behaving weird, and trying to isolate where behavior is coming from can be very difficult. So I totally favor the idea of yeah even if it is a little bit more verbo- a little more verbose, it is much more explicit and clear. It's very it's so much easier to refactor, so much easier to understand. So yeah I'm a I'm a believer in that too. So it sounds like you're, uh, like, how long have you been uh, working with Elixir now?
1: Yeah, I think it's about one year, because I just started learning Elixir in, like, like the end of 2017. And, yeah, actually, I just graduated from school in 2017. And I had, um, like, just... um, one year of Ruby experience when I graduated, and then I joined a Rails company and write uh, writing Rails there. But in the end of 2017, I decided to like I've written enough of Ruby and I I I'm enough with these all magics and maybe I should learn some functional language. And at that time, I was given the choice of like. Should should I write um, learn Rust first, or maybe Elixir? But then, I I started looking into Elixir first because of Jose Valim is a great um, member in the Rails com- community before, and uh, I wrote I ra- read a book he wrote about Rails and how to write Rails gems. And I think he can explain things well. And uh, his um, preference for the code is also uh, can teach me a lot. So I decided to learn Elixir.
0: Nice. And it sounds like uh, with the community being kind of small, did you find um, most of your learning happening online or from books? Or kind of what? how did you... What do you feel is a good way to learn
1: yeah i think there's a lot of great resources for learning elixir or programming in general just online but you know that we have the greatest firewalls in china and we cannot access like youtube or things like that and it's pretty hard for people to access to that but Mm somehow I get the access and I watch online videos a lot, like Elixir Conf Talks, and we have a lot of Elixir conferences. So they are all great, um, great resources. And I also read a lot. So like programming Phoenix and programming Elixir uh the books I read when I learned Elixir and Phoenix.
0: Great. Yeah, I I use uh a lot of online talks like from YouTube and I hadn't really thought about that that you might like people in all over the world might have a difficult time getting access to different uh things that like that are available to me. And obviously, you know, if it's in English and someone is a non-English speaker, that's gonna be a problem. But yeah, just like being able to have access to it at all. So that's great. I'm, I'm glad you're able to still get access to the things that are helpful. So that's awesome.
1: Yeah, I think blog pod, uh, I think podcast is also a great resources for us as well. Because I remember when I started learning Ruby, I listened to Ruby logs, And so now it's all Ruby podcast. And even before Alexia Mix came out, I start. I, I sub subscribe to it already because it was mentioned in one episode of Ruby Rocks. So yeah, I listen to podcasts as much as I can. Yeah, it's funny because I remembered I cannot. I couldn't understand all of the conversations happened uh, at the time when I started listening to Ruby Rocks. <laughs> But I still try to understand as much as I can.
3: How many people do you know right now, sort of in your in your circle, that are say in their first three months or so of learning Elixir? Just curious. Uh,
1: not m- much, I'm afraid, because um, so we have uh, small WeChat groups, um, and they there are just about a hundred of people or two hundreds of people and I don't see many new faces uh, joining, but it's kind of act- active in the groups. We discuss a lot about Elixir, Rust, and maybe sometimes Go language, and also a lot of great resources and uh, packages in there.
3: When I was first learning Ruby, there was no one doing any, anything Ruby-like in my state that I could find. Uh, And so I I went. You know, I drove three hours to a meetup uh, once a month to go join the Atlanta, Georgia Ruby Users Group, which is where I met my my current business partner. And um, the I remember just back then when it was it was so new at the time. You know, this was shortly after I guess Dave Thomas had had published Programming Ruby, and it was uh, it was great because the group, the people that come to the the very small groups uh, tend to be really interesting, like the first people to show up on, at a technology uh, I have found in general are, are very interesting people, so um, I hope I hope it's like that there as well, uh, even though the groups are small.
1: Yeah, we have um, like Elixir meetups in Shanghai, but uh, there are just a few people and we discuss about distributed systems and Elixir and Erlang in general. but. It hasn't been hosted in several months, I guess, because everyone is busy and the community is small and it's hard to keep it going.
0: So what are some of the things you're looking forward to, uh, like learning more about in the in the Elixir or technologies that you're interested in? But like, what are you looking for? And like, what gets you excited?
1: Yeah, so recently I'm thinking more about mocking um, and how to test Um, how to use this kind of test strategy in Elixir. So we have mocks uh, written by Jose and Platformatic, and it's using like behavior to define the interface of modules and uh, to somehow mock it in the test cases. But now I'm thinking about using uh, protocols in Elixir to define the interface and somehow define the mocks in the test cases.
0: Yeah, that is an interesting
3: topic. Yeah, I have I have definitely done that. Uh, mocks kind of encourages you to to head down that route in the first place, which is fun. Um, yeah, I had to do that for a uh, for a mock for Stripe on uh, not Stripe, not normal Stripe, but a sort of Stripe um uh, paying third party merchants that, that there was not a. Not a particularly great way to test that aside from doing stateful things. And um, the fact that I'd already used mocks for for other things made it very easy to just fall into that, which is super nice.
1: Yeah, and I think test is a great way for us to like fight the complexity of our software. So like we just said in the previous conversation, we have like a huge app a huge app for us to modify or update, but we don't know if our modification would cause any any part of this app to break. But if we have a great test cases test suite, then we can make sure if we run this test suite and everything is green, then we can make our modifications more confidently. Yes.
0: Uh, when I first started learning about TDD and, or just even having good test coverage, it was at a, a conference years and years ago. And this guy, and like he was trying to explain to a bunch of guys like Windows developers, like Windows apps, um, why this is a good idea. And he's like, and though I love the way he described it. It's like, you know, if you have good test coverage, then it's like you can just run through your code like with a machete and just like chopping it up like you would like Indiana Jones in a jungle, right? Just chopping stuff up and throwing it around and you know what you broke and what's working. And you know, like when you rearranged it and it's working again and just like, he's like, it just gives you that level of confidence that you have in being able to know that you haven't broken something so that you have the freedom to say, it's okay for me to refactor. And so, yeah, I, I love having, good test coverage and that doesn't mean like 100% I, I never go for that but yeah just like especially over anything that's critical business logic you know I, like you have to have test coverage on that stuff
3: yeah, yeah like, sorry go
1: on yeah sorry. I think it's the same for the test cases like uh, we don't go for 100% coverage because we don't want to repeat our test knowledges over a so we use mocks to Avoid repeating the test knowledge because if we use mocks, then we don't need to repeat to test if um, object is created in the database in the both controller layer and the model layer.
2: I don't know if you're like me, but when I have a new idea, I probably spend an hour looking for a domain that communicates the right thing to the right people so that they know what I'm about. And that's why I picked up as a sponsor the .tech domains. And you should definitely check them out. There's never been a domain that's helped represent the tech community so well. And getting a domain that's relevant to your brand that helps encapsulate the ethos of what you're doing is just, it's hard. And the .coms a lot of times are taken up. And so having a .tech is really, really awesome. Now, I have actually picked up devchat.tech. Um, we have a lot of SEO behind devchat.tv, so it probably won't switch, but I wanted that out there so that people can pick it up and know that devchat is about tech. And, And I just, I love the idea. So using a .tech domain was an awesome solution for us. It's short, it's relevant to what we do, and it just sticks in people's head. It's a natural fit for anything technology. So if you're a programmer, if you're working on a tech startup or an open source library or things like that, it's definitely a great way to go. In fact, a lot of other companies have actually been moving over to .tech. So CES, which is a conference that I go to every year and uh, go check out all the new technology, they switched over to CES.tech from CESweb.org. Viacom has Viacom.tech to host their tech division. Intel chose Insight.tech for their latest initiative. And startups on a tech domain have raised more than a billion dollars on a .tech domain. So if you want your own .tech domain, go to go.tech slash elixir and use the coupon code elixir.tech and get a one-year tech domain at $9.99 and a five-year .tech domain at $49.99. Now, if you use this coupon code to get a .tech domain, tweet at me at CMAXW and let me know what .tech domain you got so that I can shout it out on Twitter. Uh, I'd really love to see what you're doing with this. And I think it's just a great product. So go check it out at go.tech slash elixir and get this deal today.
3: So I've, I've found that like, I got into tests because I had code break a lot and I wanted to make sure my code stopped breaking because I didn't want to look like a bad developer. Like, honestly, that's, that's what got me started writing tests. But these days I like, it's where I do my thinking. So like I was talking, we were talking with someone earlier that talked about how they, you know, whip stuff up in, in IEX and use the REPL. And I used to be like a heavy REPL user, but these days I find that like writing the test gives me the separation from the doing the work part where I can plan, like, this is the API that a user will use. And, like, I can write, like, wouldn't it be nice if this were the API for interacting with this thing? And then once I feel like, okay, that code looks good, I run the test, and, of course, nothing works because nothing has been written. But, um, but that's, where, that's where my thinking happens these days. And I, it's weird to me because I wrote a whole lot of software before I got that way, and I don't know how to do that that way anymore.
0: Yeah, it's like only when I'm playing, like, you know, they call it a spike uh when you're just like playing around and like I don't even know how this is gonna work. I don't even know what it's gonna look like. And it's like that's the only time I'm like I'm not writing tests. Um but then it's like once I figure out what it's gonna look like. Oh, okay it's gonna have an interface. It's gonna do something like this. That's when I start writing tests. And I think I bug people with how much I like my tests. <laughs> I like coworkers, you know. But uh I I just find so much power and it gives me confidence. And that's really why I do it. So are there any other uh interesting things that you look for in the community like I'm just curious like if you've had a chance to Look at live view or any of that new stuff. That's kind of coming out
1: Yeah, so live view just came out like last week if I remember uh, correctly so I've also waited for it for a long time like I really wanted to use it in my set projects to make my Side projects more interactive because I'm mostly a back end developer and I'm not writing much of front end code. And the functionality, live view, uh, the LiveView library pr- provided, is a great um, chance for us to write interactive applications, I think. Yeah, we've just started
0: exploring it at work to see. Uh, how well it will match to what we're trying to do. And so my coworker today, he's just like trying to hack around and see, you know, this stuff isn't fully documented. He's trying to say, hey, can I make drag and drop work where I can drag over, you know, items in a list and rearrange a list? Can I do that? And so he's been exploring with that. And that's been really fun. Uh, I'm really excited to see where that's going to go.
1: And I also saw a thread in Twitter that people complains about using live Views would cause developers to write worse code because uh, live View uses WebSocket and if you develop the application locally and you would have no latencies between the server and your client. So it feels very fast. But if you deploy your app to the server, there must be some latency between the app and the and the client. And the people were saying that it will cause developer to ignore the latency between the user and your app. So it's bad for for these kind of stu- situations like 3G or bad connections. Mm. But then Chris McHood, um replied that we were putting a lot of efforts into that to make it easier to deba- debug or simulate these kind of situations in LiveView library. So I think it's a great direction that the maintainers of Elixir, Phoenix, they all put efforts into ma- making the ecosystem more and more helpful so that we can write applications easier and easier.
0: Are there any other topics uh, that you think we should talk about?
1: Yeah, so maybe a lot of work I'm doing these days is about how to make the projects more agile and uh, things like that. And I think Elixir is a great language to like uh, write agile applications because it provides, Elixir and Elan provides you all you need to write modern web applications. And you can just start from a single server with Phoenix and then maybe scale and scale into multiple nodes and things like that.
0: That is an interesting idea that um have you do you feel like using elixir uh be is more agile that allows you to be more responsive and adapt better have you Is that something you've been experiencing
1: Yeah so I think. The idea was coming from a talk from Sasha Durek. So it's called Solid Ground. It says Elixir and Alarm provides us a solid ground, ground with OTP and these kind of things. So for example, um, I wrote an application in Elixir and Phoenix and then we I can just start with simple controller and models Then when the logic becomes more and more complicated, I can extract logic from controller to context and uh, with different modules, things like that. And then after things get more complicated, I can introduce like ETS to store things in in memory to speed things up. And then maybe the we have more and more users and we need to scale our application, then we can go multi-node because Erlang already pro- provides us these kind of functionalities. So it's like starting small, but more and more scale. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's like, yeah, you don't have to start with the big complex system right away, right? And I, I really have felt that um, uh, functional code Where you're not dealing with objects and object oriented things but functional code where it's just modules and functions is typically much easier to refactor so like you're saying it's like hey uh yeah it's time to time to clean up our controllers and move things into context and okay now yeah that's not so hard you know you can do that and i think i don't know i I, josh has that been your experience that like it's easier to refactor and just kind one of one million I
3: guess. times, yes, yeah, uh, very, very much. So, um, the the Joe Armstrong quote about, I wanted a banana, but I got a banana, and the gorilla, and the whole forest. Um, I, I am, as I mentioned, I'm working on a Ruby project right now, and just like completely normal looking Rails code that a coworker writes. That's totally reasonable to write in Rails. I look at it, and I'm like, all right, there's four instance variables, and honestly, I don't know what sets them, and now I have to read, like, a lot of stuff to know, like, can I pull this out? And that's for really ba- – that's, like, super basic stuff. That's, like, I have four methods, and they do two, two lines of code each, and I still can't refactor them. And that's not that's not even a complicated class. So, yeah, a lot. I feel that way. That's That was probably the biggest, like, eye-opener for me when I sort of started doing functional programming in full was – just how easy it is to refactor things um and i have to give elm a shout out right because because it's easy enough in, in elixir because things are just functions and and values but but in elm it's you also have a nice compiler to tell you uh when not not just when you refactor things but hey you change the signature and here's the seven places you need to update in your code mm-hmm. so yeah
0: all right yuming is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we go to PICs?
1: No, oh, I think we can go to picks. I've waited for this for a long time. Like, all right, he's got something he wants to share.
0: But uh, uh, first, Josh, do you have anything uh, you'd like to share? I have two picks.
3: So they are both videos. One is one video, and one is a thread that will have a lot of more videos. So the first is the codebeam SF uh, twenty nineteen talks thread on Elixir Forum, and right now it has Jose's talk announcing Broadway. Which is um I have not watched the talk yet, but i've I've uh read posts about Broadway, and we're mm-hmm. playing with it um and then the other is a talk from elmconf uh Matthew Griffith talking about uh elm u i or really it's a it's about uh design pattern or a pattern language for developing user interfaces and elm u i is one of my favorite favorite libraries just of of all libraries because uh it makes if you're, if you're an Elm person, it makes uh, building user interfaces extremely tractable because you're not thinking in terms of what is the document that I'm putting on the page and how does the CSS correspond to it. He really has found a very nice API that he, he worked for like three years to, perf- I'm not gonna say perfect because I'm sure he still has other things to find. But He's really found an excellent API for describing user interfaces in a, in a super meaningful, readable way where when you want to do a thing, it's extremely clear how to do that thing. And that's definitely been my uh, my biggest problem with design. I've been a designer-type person my whole life. I started out as a designer and doing uh, web UI, and I've never been as good at doing HTML and CSS as I got doing Elm UI in like two days of work. So um, it's, just a, it's really awesome. If you haven't seen it, it's at least interesting to watch, even if you're not going to write Elm. So that you can see like the API design decisions that someone makes when they really, really want to make an API have really good ergonomics. So, yeah, those are my picks.
0: That's cool. Uh, I didn't realize you you came from a designer background. That's interesting. We'll have to talk more about that some other time.
3: I'm not, a, I'm not great at design, but uh, I was, was good enough at design that that got my foot in the door. I literally got my first job as a designer because I wanted to be a software developer there and uh, oh. they only had an opening for a designer, but I'd been doing design. I was like 14, so uh, that, was, that was how I got in.
0: That's very cool. Yeah, so I have uh, two picks. Um, one we already kind of mentioned is that Live View is available online. I will say it is not released because it is not... Um, Publicly, it's not like on Hex PM, at least at, at the point of we at the point when we're recording this. Uh, but it is available online. The GitHub repo is public, and so it is something you can play with. So I'm going to put in a the post from uh, it's a Twitter post from Chris McCord when he was kind of announcing that. Another one. uh, It I'm this is a talk from Elixir Days 2018 by Andrew Howe and it is about DDD or design. Uh, Dang it!
1: Domain driven design.
0: Yes, it's about domain driven design and specifically Phoenix contexts. And uh, it was a, a a coworker had tipped me off to this one, and I thought it was awesome. Uh, just it's a great way to explain, especially if you're wanting to kind of explain this to your coworkers about how this would work and why this why this is beneficial. So uh, that's the two for me. And Yiming, do you have something you would like to share?
1: Yeah, so I have three picks. So the first is a Mac application. It's called Contacts, and it's a window switcher for Mac. So you can basically open a spotlight-like window and you can type the window names for your uh, window you want to switch to. But the most powerful thing it provides is that if you have two separate windows for the same, for the same app, it will display them as two separate items. So you can switch between uh, different windows of the same app um, accurately. And another pick is that Thoughtbot uh, released their, their books as uh, open source, so you can check check them out, they they have great content on Git and Rails and many much more things about development. So the third pick is a book, it's called Accelerate. Accelerate. So it's uh, written by the DevOps community. So we can, they do several surveys over the past several years and they Summarize how to do software development in modern area.
0: Very cool, and I did not know about uh, like these books being available online. Looks like there's some interesting titles, uh, like Goal-Oriented Git. That sounds interesting. All right. Well, Yiming Chen, thank you for coming on. Um, if you if people would like to get in touch with you, how would you uh, like them to reach out?
1: Yeah, so I use almost all the same ID over all platforms. So on Twitter, I'm dsdshcyn, and almost all other platform social medias, I'm using the same ID. And also you can check out my GitHub profile, and it has the link to my blog. All right, well,
0: we will certainly include those in the show notes. So people can find you there. All right. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you today. And uh, that's it for today. We hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix.
2: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.